0: Well, it's great to be here, and I love, love the place itself and all the windows and um, greenery. Just wonderful, um, wonderful opportunity to come here. And I my connection is with uh, Jim Singleton. Some of you may know him. He teaches at Gordon-Conwell, where I teach, um, But uh, and I was actually... Um, on the search committee uh, when he came to... So it was just a great gift to be able to get to know him and then, of course, to see him with uh, teaching. Uh, And he had uh, asked me to speak at the eco-conference, which is where I'm... Some of the connection, as um, uh, Dina mentioned. And so that was kind of the connection. Well, last week I did stop by his office and I said, oh, I'm heading out to the West Coast. Um, Can you just tell me a little bit about the group... And he said, well, they're not like New Englanders. <laughs> and, I said, what? and I said, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, they're kind of loosey-goosey. <laughs> that was the language he used. And I said, loosey-goosey? And he goes, well, they're kind of, they're a lot more laid back than you New Englanders are. And I said, oh, he said, they're kind of, he said, and I was wearing jeans with like this floral shirt. And he said, like, what you're wearing right now? You're overdressed. And I said... <laughs> So, uh, anyway, that was my uh, introduction to you as a group. And I said, "Okay, so what you... And maybe he said that because I can get sometimes a little bit intense. And uh, uh, so I said, so what you're saying is I've got to kick in the Australian because, you know, Australians are a lot more laid back. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's what you want to do. That's what you want to do. Uh, quick illustration of how laid-back Australians can be. Um, when I was at gordon Conwell, and I uh, was there as a student before teaching there, but um, I, took a, I worked in an excavation over in Israel, and... Um, we decided to make a trip to Sinai, and I was so excited about it. I've been reading all about Exodus and the Theophanies, and, you know, this is the place where God spoke, and I was just so excited. So it was this 100-degree temperature, and a number of us from the excavation were there. We were hiking up the mountain. We were going to stay overnight because... Uh, we just thought we got to get there and the, be there for the sunrise in the morning. And, you know, so it was just it was wonderful. So as we're going up this mountain, we're exhausted, boiling hot. We, we get towards the top, and I start to smell something. And it's a barbecue. <laughs> and there's a group of Australians who have carried their barbecue with their steak on 100-degree temperatures on the top of, with their beer, and they were a little bit rowdy. I, I suddenly was like with the friends and I was like, mum's the word. <laughs> so we quietly moved to the other side of the mountain. So anyway, but they had a great time uh, and they were certainly enjoying themselves. Um, so, but we're not here to talk about Mount Sinai tonight. Uh, we are here to talk about uh, Genesis. Uh, and I want us to... My own work, doctoral work, was in Genesis. I uh, did my study over at Cambridge and looked at uh, the language of be fruitful and multiply, uh, which is if you're over on a plane and someone starts talking to you, he's kind of not the first conversation starter in terms of, oh, I was on be fruitful and multiply, and they're like, oh, okay, check please, you know. So, but it was in Genesis, and uh, I have done some work over the, the past um, few years. So... What we'd like to do to, I'd like to do tonight is look at uh, the opening chapter of Genesis. In particular, I want to reflect on this divine human relationship in the opening of Genesis. And as we think about this relationship, it's absolutely at the core of who we are. I think of I left Australia... Uh, to go and study at Gordon-Conwell, didn't know anyone, hopped on a plane, said goodbye to family, friends, my whole life and my whole world, hopped on a plane, arrived at Gordon-Conwell, and who is it who is with me? God. And for those of you who have traveled overseas, when you're on your own, you know that, here is my companion and my God. God. When I went over to England, my first six months were a bit rough, I went over, I was single as well, and over to Cambridge, not knowing, i met my supervisor once, hopped on a plane, left everything behind, went over to England, and yet who is it who is with me? God. This human relationship, this divine human relationship is absolutely at the core of who we are. This uh, last semester I was teaching Old Testament survey and so we spent about 40 hours going through the Old Testament. We have um, given the opportunity from anyone from in the uh, town can come and order to class. Well, at the end of the semester I get an email from this lady and I didn't know but she'd been taking my class, not a believer, and said she'd been spending about two hours to three hours every day reading her Old Testament. And she emailed me, and I could tell that she wasn't, because I could tell the language she was trying to use, language, but it wasn't quite the right language. So I said, emailed her back and said, hey, if you'd, if you'd like to, um, to talk about any of these, I don't know what your religious background is, but if you'd like to talk about these, anything, I'd, I'd be happy to meet with you. She said, actually, I would like to talk with you. So we started meeting in January, and we, our first conversation, we maybe chatted probably for about an hour and a half, two hours, asked her all about her own background, about Old Testament. And I said to her, you know, halfway through the conversation, I said, you know, I just want you to know that all the things that we've learned through the Old Testament, this is about a relationship with God. This is what it's all, I just want you to know that. And I said to her, and I'm coming from as i teach the old testament from being inside the story and i know this god and she said to me that's what i want i want to know who that god is and we have begun a conversation going through christianity explored where we've started to look at who jesus is and and so hungry for a relationship and the opening chapters of Genesis are going to help us to explore. I want us to think through this relationship, which especially looking at the image of God and how does that inform this relationship? Okay. When God says in Genesis 1:26 to 28, let us make Adam, humanity, male and female, and he wants to make human beings in his image. So I want to look at that for a few minutes, but I also want to look at not only what God does in Genesis 1 to 3, but also the distortion of the divine human relationship. Because what we see, big picture of the Old Testament, is God creates human beings in his image for a relationship with him, but the relationship is distorted throughout the story of the Old Testament because instead of human beings worshipping the creator God, they turn and make a God themselves. And it is a distortion of the original intention. So I want us to unpack what the image of God is about. And then I want to think about what does the distortion look like? And how does it manifest? And where are the signs of the distorted human relationship in our culture and even in our churches today? So that's kind of where we're going. So Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 begins, and many things could be said about the opening chapter of Genesis. It begins in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Highly poetic in its language. I'm going to come back to this. But there's one thing I want to highlight in Genesis chapter 1. And it is the fact that the creation story and the act of the creation is preceded by the word of God. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And God, then there was light, and God saw that it was good. Verse 6, and God said, let there be. Verse 9, then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Verse 11, and God said, in fact, 10 times in the opening of Genesis. Now, I just want us to appreciate the value of what's going on here. Now, if you ask me what I did today, I would say, well, I got up in the morning, I had a cup of coffee, I read for a few minutes, whatever, I'd go through. But if I said it this way, you'd think, what's going on here? If I said, well, I said to myself, I will get up. And I got up. And I said to myself, I will make a cup of coffee. And I made a cup of coffee. That's what God's doing in Genesis chapter one, and God said, and then He said, and God said, "Let us make a man in our image." And God made human beings in His image. So, priority of the Word of God. We find that God is the God who speaks in Genesis chapter one. Not only does God speak to bring the creation into being, but we find out in Genesis chapters, these opening chapter, that God speaks to human beings. He speaks to Adam and Eve. He speaks to Cain, to Abel. Have you ever thought about how remarkable that is? That the living God, the creator God, speaks to human beings. I find that absolutely remarkable. I still do. He speaks to human beings and the whole book of Genesis is in fact about people's lives and God speaking to them. God not only speaks to human beings, and here's the amazing thing, he not only speaks to them, but they talk back to him, sometimes not so well. So he comes in Genesis chapter 3, he gives a command in Genesis chapter 2 and then he comes to Adam and Eve in chapter 3 and of course they take from the fruit and he says, what is this you have done? And Adam dialogues with God. Conversation with the living God. Eve, he does the same thing. Notice there is no dialogue with the serpent, just a word of judgment. So he dialogues with human beings. Think of the stories going on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Right? Again, he's murdered his brother. There's dialogue that takes place. Think of Noah. When God, He's going to look at Noah tomorrow night when God tells him to go and build the ark. There is this relationship, and of course, especially seen in Genesis chapter 12, when God speaks to Abraham and says to him to go forth, and his word changes the whole redemptive story. Right? When God speaks, he speaks to him. He's going to got a new plan for him. Think of Genesis chapter 18, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. I love that dialogue because here is God telling Abraham what he's about to do. I mean, who is this God? God. What is he doing? I'm going to let Abraham know what I'm about to do. Not only does God tell Abraham what he's going to do, but then there's this incredible dialogue. Because God says, I'm going to destroy And then Abraham says, well, are you, you know, what if there's 45 righteous or 50 righteous in the city? We, no, I won't destroy it. Well, God, um, uh, what if there's 45? Think of who this is. This is God. What if there's 45? And he says, no, I won't destroy the city. What if there's 40? Oh, Lord, I, I, I don't mean to be, you know. I what if there's 40? And it goes back and forwards, this dialogue with the living God. Think of, you could continue with the patriarchs. What about Moses? Here we have the burning bush. And Moses says, I will turn aside and see why this bush is still burning. And then what happens? God says, Moses, Moses. And he says, here am I. And so there's this relationship. And remember when God calls Moses, he says, well, I'm slow of speech. I mean, what are you telling God that for? Relationship with the living God. The Israelites Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, God's Word spoken. Exodus 24, when he says, build the tabernacle. Build the tabernacle because I want to meet with you because I'm going to talk to you. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 7, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to you? It is as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him. Verse 32, indeed, ask now concerning the former days which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, from one end of the heaven to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing? Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire? Verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord hears God. There is no other God. Out of heaven, he lets you hear his voice. Hearing the voice of God. Verse 39, know therefore today and take it to heart that the Lord He is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. And we could go on with these chapters of hearing the voice of God. And, of course, the whole scriptures is the word of God to us. This is the God who speaks. So what's the background for this? A couple of minutes in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. The image of God language. We have two terms being used, Selim, image and Demuth, likeness, two words. If you look at theologians over history, we have explained it in different ways. Sometimes it is in terms of the the rational abilities and then the spiritual abilities and theologians over the centuries. But what has been done in recent years, and I think it's very insightful, is looking at the image of God in terms of the ancient Near East, Okay. Uh, and I just mentioned two references here. One is by um, an article by David Kleins with a C, The Image of God in Man. David Kleins with a C, The Image of God in Man. And then the other one, uh, Kathy McDowell is actually coming out with a book called The Image of God and the Garden of Eden. So I mentioned those two. But So here's what's been going on. Scholars have looked at the image of God language and seen it in two different ways in the ancient world. And again, I'm going somewhere with this, so you have to stay with me just for a couple of minutes. So the image of God is used in two ways in the ancient world. This term, Selam, specifically. Okay? One is that the king is said to be the image of the God, and so when the king is not in a far land, he can set up an image of Selam, of himself, and it is... Emphasizing his domain. Okay. So when we have some there's one particular statue that has both Selam and Demuth being used. The other way that image is used is of an idol. Okay. And the term is used of when the ancient world, both in Mesopotamian texts and in Egyptian texts. Again, I'm sure you've heard about this that uh, they would make this idol. Sometimes it was in a form of an animal, like we have the golden calf, but the other times it's in the form of a human being. That's the most either a woman, whether it's to do with fertility, or it's a male, and they're making this idol. So if you imagine a temple and they're making an idol. And we know from some of these Mesopotamian texts that the idols are often painted, right? They have eyes on them. They have facial expressions. They have clothing. Ezekiel chapter 16 talks about the material that's covered. So they have clothing. And there's also some rituals where the idol that's made of wood and stone, that the priest breathes into it and it becomes the dwelling place of the deity. Okay. So scholars have looked at the image of God language in Genesis 1:26 to 28, and looked at the language used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust. From the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So, why is this going to help us to start to think through the image of God? So, what scholars have looked at is instead of thinking specifically of theological categories, we need to think about the ancient Near Eastern background and what we see in Genesis chapter 1. Is that God is forming that verb Yatser to form is the same verb used of forming an idol. And in fact, the term Tselem in several places, Amos chapter 5, verse 26, Ezekiel 16, verse 17, Numbers thirty-three fifty-two, Second 52, 2nd Kings eleven eighteen. 18. The term image is used of one of these idols the second kings 11:18 talks about the images of Baal that are set up in the temple have you ever thought through why is it that god is using a term which is used for idol in genesis 1:26 to 28 i mean how odd is that when the whole old testament is arguing against idolatry I think what's going on in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, in those two chapters, is it is the original. It is the original, and what goes on afterwards is going to be the counterfeit. Okay? The original and the counterfeit. So here's what we want to unpack When God makes human beings in his image, remember there's no image in the temple. There's no idol representing God in the temple because he has his representatives in human form. He has his human representation, he has his image, and scholars have looked at the Garden of Eden having a lot of temple imagery. He is setting up human beings in the cosmos, which is his domain, his holy place. But he makes human beings, and they are living images. Psalm 115 talks about the idols that have eyes that cannot see they have ears that cannot hear they have mouths that cannot speak and there is no breath in them So human beings are making images this is now re thinking through reconceptualizing the divine human relationship God creates human beings for a living relationship. His image is living because he's the living God and he's created human beings with mouths that speak for relationship with him. But human beings make God an image, but what they make has ears that cannot hear, it has eyes that cannot see, it has a mouth that cannot speak. Because human beings like to worship a God that cannot speak. So human beings, therefore, have the concept of Elohim without the real relationship. They have the concept of God. It is not that the whole Old Testament, they are atheists. They're religious. But they have a concept of God without a relationship. And in fact, the re- without the relationship with the real God, the relationship that they have with the idol is they tell the God what to do, but the God does not tell them what to do. So... You have a concept of God, and I want to read through Jeremiah and Isaiah in a moment. But what happens is, and this is we see in Rachel in Genesis chapter 31, is you have a concept of God without the real relationship, but it gives security, right? It gives the concept of the religious. And it enables human beings to stay in control. Nice form of religion, isn't it? So what happens is Rachel, when she leaves her father, she carries her idol in your pocket. Right? And and the idol, Genesis thirty-one, this is a sample replica. The idol, you know what it's called in Genesis? Elohim. Barashit bara Elohim. In the beginning God, now I have God in my pocket. She in fact sits on God. Remember that in the story? I have God in my pocket. I feel good because I'm leaving my family. I want to have God with me, but the God doesn't tell me what to do. And that God makes no claim. We're going to think about what does this mean in our culture today because you know that more than three-quarters of Americans say they believe in God. Right? And we can have a concept of God without the real relationship. And we don't have the idol in our pocket, but we have a concept of God that we can bring with us wherever we go, including to church. Because if God never tells us what to do, then we are treating him just like an idol. And so as we start to think about this, and I'll look at a couple of the passages, is that as we think of people who are coming into our churches, we need to recognize that, that many of them, they're not atheists, they're religious right? They are religious. And I'm going to look at some specific ways within our culture, but what we need to begin to, to bring to people, which is why I said to this lady, I want you to know all this is about a reliving relationship with God. And I said to her, I know him. She said, I can see that. I, could, I saw that in the class, right? Why can I say that? Because I am a living image And I have a living relationship with the living God. And I think people are hungry for it. They are hungry to know who God is because the story of the Old Testament says when you have a God like this, when you worship a God that has eyes that cannot see, mouth that cannot speak, ears that cannot hear when you have a God like this the Psalms 115 Psalm 135, Isaiah 40 to 55 says that you become like the idol you worship you become blind and deaf to the living God and because this masks the real relationship, and we've got to help people get beyond the concept of God to the real relationship. And one of the ways I like to think about this in my own I'm, uh, my own relationships with people, and I am involved live in my husband. And I live in Salem, which is kind of like they call it the witch witch city capital, right? We have uh, so we have a lot of religiosity in Salem including in tarot cards, in all kinds of things. On Halloween, we get 60,000 people come into the city. Uh, we have about 3,000 witches who live in the city. So you get all kinds of people. I'm involved in a couple of book clubs with uh, non-Christians. Um, some of them uh, go to church. I know they have no, rela- they have no idea what it means to have a relationship with the living God. We're going to look at a couple of the concepts. This is, I've been thinking about this, but one of the ways I try and get through that is by, by any opportunity. I, I talk about my relationship with God, not even about their worldview. Because that's, you know, the book um, by uh, I Once Was Lost. I don't know if you've read it, by Two InterVarsity. Uh, they've interviewed thousands of college campus kids, And one of the things they said is in our culture today that if you say that you're a Christian, you are immediately put in a position of distrust. And it takes about two years before you move to a position of trust. And so I'm part of book clubs with non-Christians, and just as an example, I want them to know that this is not about going to church on Sunday, as much as that's part of my, but it is about a living relationship. Uh, A few months ago, we were part of our book club, and... um, This couple uh, were talking about they had adopted um, this young um, girl, she's probably about five years old now, and they said to me, and uh, we have adopted our two boys. And so they said to me, Oh, how did you, how did you, um, you know, how did that happen for you? We'd been hearing her story. Again, they're all, you know, very kind of secular, politically, all kinds of areas. So this is, but they know them, I'm in relationship, and they said, how did you um, come to adopt your voice? And I said to them, do you want the real story? And they said, yeah, we want the real story. And I said, well, um, I was praying one day. I said, I'm a Christian, and I pray. And I not only pray, but I write things down because I want to grow in my relationship with God, and so I write things down. And they're like, you know and I know them so in in our culture everyone is allowed to have a personal story so we got to take advantage of that right and so I said well one day I was praying and I felt God say to me I have siblings for you and I said to them I wrote it down in my prayer journal and I had a big note next to it is this from you God I said because I'm a Christian and I'm trying to learn to hear from God And I said, a week later, my husband was at this retreat and he heard about two boys, siblings. And as soon as he heard about the boys, we knew that God wanted us to adopt them. And so I told this story with them. They didn't engage any further. (laughs) We've still since had book club. But my point was, I know that they can have a concept of God without a real relationship, and I want to. Every time I have opportunity, about a month and a half ago, the last one, someone chose meditation. I was like, "All right, this will be interesting." So I talk about meditation going up, and I said, "Well, kind of, I was thinking about this because meditation—I kind of pray. It's not quite the same as meditation, but it's got a lot of similarities. You know, I'm a Christian, and here's how I pray. You know, so think because people have concepts without the relationship. So." The Bible is going to hammer... I'm going to take this out of my pocket now. This is why I have, I have a, a couple of other figurines. I didn't bring them. I have one lady who's a little bit too voluptuous. I have her covered over. <clears throat> but I always have the um, security take look through my bag. They must be thinking, oh, this is odd. <laughs> so... Leave my idol there. But I wanna now I want to look at unpack this a little bit in terms of Jeremiah. This is where we're headed with it. The issue of idolatry, setting up a false concept of God, is absolutely at the core of the whole Old Testament. And let me read a couple of things here. The first passage um, I'd like to read is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter start at 44. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. In these chapters, Isaiah hammers that there is no God but the Lord God. There is no God beside the Lord God. Why? Because he is addressing the issue of idolatry. Isaiah 44, and let me just read a few things from it in this passage, and I'm reading uh, from verse 9. Those who fashion a graven image, all of them are futile. Their precious things are of no profit. Verse 10 Who has fashioned a god? L. Or cast an idol to no profit. Chapter 44, verse 11. And he goes on to say, Behold, all these people are going to be put to shame. The craftsmen are mere men. Adam. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up and tremble and be put to shame. Then he goes on and says, the man shapes iron into a cutting tool and he does his work over the coals and he fashions it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. He's working hard to make his God. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and he makes it like the form of a man like the beauty of adam adam so that it may sit in a house he cuts cedars for himself he makes and he talks about he plants these great trees we're in a beautiful context of trees and he says on one part of the tree he chops down and makes a fire and the other part of the tree he chops down to make a god and he falls down before it Verse 17, the rest of it he makes <coughs> excuse me, into his God, his graven image. He falls down before it and he says, worship it. And he prays to it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. They do not know nor do they understand for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend what you're seeing here with Isaiah. Remember Isaiah 6, they will have eyes but they will not see. Remember that whole call narrative. It is because of the making of the idols. And so what Isaiah is going to say is that the people have become blind and deaf to the idols. And I'm just going to now go back just to a a couple of verses earlier. Chapter 42, verse 17 They will be turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to molten images, You are God's Elohim. Verse 18 Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is so blind but my servant and who is as deaf as my messenger? Verse 20 You have seen many things, but you do not observe them. Your ears are open. But none hears. And this runs throughout these chapters. And so the story of Israel is that they have changed and distorted the divine human relationship, and they have made idols Elohim. They have become. Like the idols, they worship. And this is the major theme that runs through Jeremiah as well and through, think of the last king of Israel in the southern kingdom, Zedekiah. What happens to him? He breaks covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar flees after him. He kills his sons. And then he gouges out Zedekiah's eyes, the last king. Why? Because he goes out blind in the dark. And Isaiah says people are walking in darkness. They have a concept of God, but it is not the relationship with the living God. Isaiah will also say, because the people are blind and deaf, someone has to come and open those eyes. And so he's going to talk about the servant who's going to come to open blind eyes. It's a wonderful image there as well. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10. Another passage on idolatry. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Do not learn the way of the nations. Notice that they are copying the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of heaven, although the nations are terrified, for the customs of the people are a delusion. Verse 3, it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of the craftsmen with a cutting tool. Verse 4, they decorate it with silver and gold, and they fasten it with nails, with hammers, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name in might. There is none like you, verse 8. They are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. And he goes on in verse 9. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true and living God. He is the living God with the everlasting King. Verse 11, thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth. And he goes on to say, he is the creator God. So Israel has distorted the divine human relationship and they have made Elohim for themselves. They have become blind like what they worship. Jeremiah, I won't read it, Jeremiah 2.11 says they have exchanged gods. This is going to be quoted in Romans chapter 1 and it is also picking up Psalm 106. Israel's story is the human story that human beings have distorted the divine-human relationship and they are worshipping and have a concept of God without the real God. And they are in darkness. And they are doing that which does not profit. Israel's story shows us the human story and it reminds us of our culture today. So we don't have people with their idols in their pockets like this one. Okay. But here's how I want us to think of unpacking this for a couple of minutes. When they worship idols, they are no longer hearing the voice of God. God. Jeremiah is going to say at the next chapter in chapter 11, Behold the nation that did not hear the voice of God. So God is being treated like an idol. And they are worshipping an idol. Here's what I think is going on in our culture today. We don't have the idols, and I know we often think about idolatry in terms of mammon or things that get between you and God, and there's certainly that is true. There's biblical, of course, as well. But here's how I want us to be thinking about idolatry I think in our culture today that we have a concept of God, and we are defining who God is. And we're picking up our cues from the nations, from our culture. Okay, let me give you some examples of this. So I have, I have a couple of friends of mine who um, live in Salem who um, go to uh, the there's a Unitarian Universalist church. Good friends, number of good friends. And if I asked them, "Do you believe in God?" they'd say, "Yeah, we be- yeah I believe in God." They would say, "Absolutely." If I said to them, do you, what about do you think God is what do you think about God being a god of judgment like the old testament? What do you think about that? What do you think about all those kind of killings in the old testament? Is that part of who you worship? Do you think they'd say yes or no? No. Right? They would be like, "Oh no, no, that was that was back then. That's not who I worship." I follow Jesus because Jesus is all embracing And, of course, we have a lot of the new atheists that are picking this up. What about within the evangelical community if we ask the same question? Do you think people are having problems with the killings and genocide in the Old Testament? You bet they are. Oh, no, I I don't think that's really what happened. Archaeology doesn't seem to support it. I think that was their tribal kind of culture, and I don't think that's actually what really happened. Or, you know what, I can't, I'm can't. sorry, I can't worship that God. What I'm suggesting is that we are the culture itself, and if we think about those who are religious, who go to church, who have a very different concept of God that we could go through and that they are redefining who God is based on the culture. And that's exactly what the Israelites did. They redefine God. It just happened to be in the form of this. But they redefine God based on the culture. If you think of the issue of the whole Old Testament, who God is, you can, uh, a book I mentioned, uh, Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and Genocide. There's a number of these books that have come out, four views, three views. You can be guaranteed these are places that we're wrestling with. I don't know how many times when I go to teach at the churches where I will hear Christians say to me, oh, I really don't like God of the Old Testament. It's not really the best thing to say to me because I teach the Old Testament to begin with. I'm like, ah, hello, you know. But they, I mean, I have people say this to me. I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. I like Jesus. It's one of the reasons why um, I'm going to do a seminar on the casket, empty seminar. This, this way I have of understanding, helping people get to the Old Testament is I am totally grieved about that. If I think someone said about my husband, oh, I really don't like your husband because he's this and that, I would go, you know what? You don't know who he is, right? Who is standing up for the character of God? Because what is happening is people are deciding for themselves who they want God to be. And one of them is the issue of genocide. And I don't think genocide's the right word. I think there is a very, very good understanding of it to see because it's also based on the holiness of God, right? We don't like a holy God anymore. David Wells has written a book called The Holy Love of God and said we've separated holiness from love. We don't like the holiness of God, so we create a God of love that we're going to worship in the one that we want to worship. But God... Is holy. He is who he is. And so when Isaiah sees him, he says, holy, holy are you, I'm undone before you. That's who God is, and there is a concept of sin, and so you could explain it. Second point in areas of, in our culture. If I ask these friends of mine, what do you think, do you think God is the creator God, or what do you think? They would say, well, I believe in evolution and I think there's a natural cause of events. Okay. If you ask, now I, I'm, not, I'm not saying to believe God and creator, it has to be one type of theology. I'm not asking for a simplistic. But do Christians believe that God is the creator God? If you talk to, within the evangelical conversation, this is another area that is open to debate. The issue of Adam. Did God create Adam or did he not create Adam? Did Was there original sin, the way the Bible explains it, Or wasn't there? That's another area. That's the whole death. How did death come about? These are huge issues that are being debated. And what is fascinating with creation is that the Isaiah and Jeremiah, when they talk about idols, do you know what the contrast is? The living God who's the creator God. You do away with the creator God and Jeremiah says if the gods who did not create, those who aren't the creator God, they're going to be destroyed from the earth. So by reconceptualizing God as no longer creator, that's what idols are. They're the gods that cannot create. Creation is another key area where I think we are reconceptualizing. Number three, think about the concept of, if I asked these friends of mine and I said, what about, do you think, think the God of the Bible is the only God? Or do you think that there's other ways? What do you think? Do you think salvation's in Jesus? Oh, I mean, I, well, I have one friend that says, we're lucky if we hear about Jesus. Do you think he's the only way? No. Now within the evangelical community, is that up for grabs as well? It is. Here's what's interesting, going back to our passages about Isaiah 40, these 44 to 45. Isaiah not only says that the idols don't create But he says, you know what? The idols can't save you. Right? This thing can't save you. And he says, there is only one Savior, the Lord God. Because there's only one creator. There's only one Savior, the Lord God. And by the time he gets to Isaiah 44, he's been hammering this point. He gets to chapter 44 and he says that at the name of Yahweh every knee will bow. Paul quotes that in Philippians in reference to Jesus. See, we think that somehow these people who are worshipping other gods, right, are sincere. You think about the Old Testament. Do you think? any of these prophets would ever say, you know what, those people who worship Moloch, they really have got sincerity of heart. (laughs) What about those who worship, I mean, all the gods have names, they're personal, we think they're less personal, they're all personal gods. Dagon, what about those who worship Dagon? The view from the Old Testament is, there are no other gods but the Lord God. In the beginning. So I think we are reconceptualizing original sin and we could talk about other topics. Why is this happening? Because it means that human beings control God rather than God having to submit to God. So what's the, what's the solution to this? A couple of things I just will mention here. First of all, I think In our communication and ministry with people, we need to emphasize the human relationship with a living God because when they say God, they're not thinking of the same thing. So therefore, I think the role of testimony is important within the church to, to let people know in our conversations, to let people let it be part of who we are to talk about a living relationship with God. Answered prayer is another way that God shows himself to be the living God. Uh, the second area is with, obviously, preaching and teaching the Word of God. How do we find out who the living God is through the scriptures? And it, it is the Word of God opening up the eyes, showing who God is. My um, husband's uh, brother, um, Steve, he's up in Maine, he and his wife had been attending church for years going every week, Uh, about two years ago, there's been this absolutely incredible transformation. And he says, it's like the veil coming off my eyes. He was sitting in church. You've got people who are sitting in your churches who are groping in the dark and they don't even know it. He's had his There's something, the work of God, hearing the word of God, being proclaimed, that he's encountered the living God and an incredible transformation in his life. So preaching and teaching the word of God. Number three is I think we need to spend more time teaching the Old Testament and about the character of God. I think it is being maligned significantly in our culture, and it bothers me. Um, Richard Dawkins the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser there was a blog from one of the um, books on genocide I can see why atheists have problems with the Old Testament, I personally read it fairly recently, I was shocked I was horrified This is surely not the God of the New Testament at all, was he? Isn't God the source of all love? Isn't he love itself? This person goes on to say about how she can't deal with the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is why I'm absolutely committed to teaching the Old Testament within the church. I had a a few months ago a lady... A friend of mine said, look, I've got this friend of mine who is not a Christian and she's having troubles. She wants to know more about who God is. She's having troubles with reading the Old Testament. She said, would you mind meeting with her? And I said, no, I'd be happy to do so. So we met in a coffee shop. We met in a coffee shop. And I said, well, tell me about, you know. And she said, well, I really would like to learn more about the Old Testament, but I just I can't deal with all those killings and the sacrifices. It just puts me off. And I said to her, do you like Lord of the Rings? <laughs> and she said, oh, you know what? I love Lord of the Rings. I said, well, let me tell you a story. I said, I didn't grow up with Lord of the Rings. My husband is a big Lord of the Rings fan. I, you know, I said to him, he's got hobbit feet, he looks like a hobbit door, you know, and he's got our boys reading all this stuff. And I said, so years ago when the movie came out, Matt had said to me, "Would you want to go to the movie with me?" And I said, "Oh yeah, this is this will be great." So we went to the movie, and it starts off in the shire with all the green, and it reminds me of England, even though I'm from Australia. But it reminds me of England. I thought oh, this is really lovely, and and then early on in the movie, you have the dark horses, and they turn up at this. They leave the shire and they turn up at the pub, or it looks like a pub, and they're all like drooling, and it's like it's just gross. So now I'm thinking, oh, I think this is a guy movie. So here's what I do. I say to my husband, oh, I think, I think this is a bit of a guy movie. I, I, I don't think I've ever done this, but I, I, tell, I can't believe it now. And I said, I think I might just have a walk around outside and I'll meet you back here. So I did. I left. Now, I've since seen the movie probably 10 times. Right? <laughs> know all the scenes. So what was it? It was about that those few scenes put me off. Why? Because I didn't know the story. And I said this to this lady, I said to her, I said, that's what I think goes on with the Old Testament. I said, you don't know the story. And I said, let me say that once you know the story, that's not going to be who you think God is. Because his characteristic is He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And I think there is a challenge for us in the church today. I, I don't like when someone says these Richard Dawkins about who God is. We are the living image of God. We are the ones who have relationship with him and we are the ones who are able to communicate his word to at such a time as this. And so, um, quick summary, and then uh, we're just going to get started because we're going to look at the context of idolatry on Wednesday night with the call of Abraham. And what is the answer to it? So... Thinking about Genesis chapter 1, image of God. God creates human beings for a relationship with Him. The story of the Old Testament is that human beings create Elohim themselves. They have their own concept of God, and the concept they have of God means they don't ever have to submit to God. And one of the key areas. I think is for us addressing this in the church, is the word of God. Because that's what the serpent said. Did God really say that? I mean, is that what he really said? Oh, maybe he didn't. And we're going through a stage within the church today. Maybe he didn't really say. Or, that's not who I want to worship, so I'll create my own God. But we are being transformed into the image of God. And the image of God, Jesus being the image of God, comes, and how does he show us who God is? Comes and dwells among us. Incarnational. Image bearers going in our communities, showing who God is. In person. Interesting, that's what happens in Genesis. God turns up all the time in human figures. Turns up all the time. Image of God. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are indeed the living God and that you're a God who sees and hears. And even now, as we pray, we marvel at the fact that you hear prayer, that you are indeed the Creator God and you're a holy God. And yes, you are a God of love and gracious and compassionate. We thank you for that. Father, we're also reminded of the human story that we have a tendency to want to turn our back on you and create God according to our hands and our plans and devising. And thank you, Jesus, that you have even come and you have opened up our eyes and that we are being transformed into your image Father, I pray that you would give us compassion. As we think of Paul in Athens, when he looks at the city full of idols and he is stirred and provoked in his heart. Father, I pray that we might be provoked in our hearts as we think of those people that we know around us who have a concept of God, but they don't know you. Help us, I pray, bless your people here this day, Lord, that you would stir our hearts to want to proclaim your name. We thank you in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. 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 We do have a time for questions. How do you? Yes, we got
1: microphones. Perfect.
0: Yes. Great.
1: So, a quick clarification question yes. and then implication. So, are you? So, if we understand this, God making us as this image. Yes. Uh, we might use the word idol, but we wouldn't want to. Yes. That idea. Are you saying that that concept was clear in the authors of the scriptures beyond Genesis?
0: Yes. So I think um, uh, Genesis is primarily where you have the image of God. If you know that the occurrences of the word, it's not that often used in terms of the Old Testament, but it is a story of origins, and you start to get the vocabulary coming up in um, image and making and yatsara to form all that with the idol piece. So I think so, that's where you're seeing more the counterfeit of it, if you so like. So
1: Isaiah and Jeremiah could have said, they could have added like us. Like they these idols don't have eyes, they can't hear like we can. Like they would right. have been comfortable making that comparison like we, we humans can yes. because we're the image.
0: That's right. So... Uh, the theme throughout the Old Testament it is, um, if you look at a lot of the prayers like Daniel prays, open your eyes and see it it's just reverberates through the Old Testament that the living God is a God who hears answers prayer So, and then um, the, the Psalm 115 I think Psalm 135 is the other one um, Greg Beale has written on this uh, the hardening of the heart kind of idea um, Kathy McDowell mentioned the image of God, and there's a number of articles and books as well. So so I guess people are looking at it from the ancient world, and I think that's been fairly clearly established. The other piece that's coming up is Genesis 1 and 2 have often been separate, and this is connecting the two narratives, to say, no, Genesis chapter 2 is actually part of the image-making ceremony.
1: So then the implication question is, how does the self-understanding of being the image yeah. of God... Yeah. Um, help power holiness, personal human holiness?
0: Yeah, so I think um, you don't usually see image of God and holiness pieces together. But I think um, you have, of course, Leviticus, be holy for I am holy. So image of God language doesn't turn up there. But it, it is the likeness piece that gets picked up. Uh, I think Demuth doesn't get used as well. So I mean, image of God is selective in where it's occurring. In, it's, it's not like it's 500 times, it's, it's like 15 times. So they're the big two play It could also be shadow and so forth. So, but I think the likeness piece, of course, we could look at New Testament passages being made in the image of Jesus. That's where you really start to see it. Um, some have suggested image as sonship language and daughtership kind of language being, um, because of Genesis chapter 5 and so on. So holiness would be, um, I think, the Leviticus, the whole laws being holy because I am holy that holy set-apart, that otherness.
1: Yeah. So as you were talking about this, I was thinking of uh, Revelation chapter 21 where John's vision of the New Jerusalem where he says, you know, the glory of God gives light to the city and the yeah. lamb is the lamp. Yeah. If Jesus is the ultimate image
0: yeah.
1: and, you know, a lamp is what holds and gives the light, yeah. is that sort of like the, I guess, I don't know if you can say archetypal, but... You know, there at the end of time, there you have the ultimate human image standing in the temple city, shining with the glory of God throughout all creation. I mean, is that...
0: Yes, it it sounds a lot like um, Greg, Dr. Beal. Greg Beal has done a lot with the whole New Jerusalem. Yes, so the whole light image is very dominant in Isaiah. Idea of darkness in terms of um, there's there's a spiritual darkness that they need the light to come upon them. And I think it gets picked up with... The Zedekiah, that he goes out in the dark, Um, Ezekiel 12 connects that to the whole blind and deaf theme. Um, So yes, and then the whole light, of course, Jesus being light that's picking up. Darkness can also be to do with death as well.
1: You mentioned The Image of God by Kleins, but there was another book you mentioned, and I didn't catch yeah, it. Yeah,
0: so the article by um, David Kleins is the Tyndall Bulletin, The Image of God in Man. Uh, the other um, book that's, it's not out yet, um, but it's by Kathy McDowell, and that is um, The Image of God and the Garden of Eden, and she's, it's Harvard Dissertation, And it's looking at... um, That gives the full um, Egyptian and Mesopotamian ancient Near Eastern um, background for it. Yeah.
1: When you talk about um, people being blind, how much do you believe is that from God? And how much is that from man.
0: Yeah. So the so the idea of blind um Isaiah um, Ezekiel picks it up in th- uh, threads but Isaiah in particular the call narrative in Isaiah chapter 6 um so the psalms that I mentioned talk about you become like what you worship so there's that you're causing it in one sense if it's you you're doing it so you're becoming like that and that of course is in Isaiah But Isaiah also has a ministry, I think, to bring about a further hardness and blindness. But he's not bringing it to a people who are great people and he's going to somehow make them blind. It It is through his prophetic uh, word that's being spoken that that's going to cause a further hardness because they're going to dig the heels in and it cut the call narrative isaiah chapter 6 the next one you have the story of ahaz when he kind of um, won't listen to the prophet that's hardening and that's causing this blindness so i think um, the, the the language of the blind and deaf theme uh, another book on that um, ricky watts isaiah's new exodus in mark Ricky Watts, Isaiah's new exodus in Mark, deals with this a lot in within the Gospels and ties the theme. Um, so I think it is both. But I think you have to say, even in the Isaiah 44, they do not know that God has smeared over their eyes. And Jesus will talk about the parables as well in terms of quoting Isaiah chapter 6 as well. Yep.
1: One more and then go to login. So this is... I. I'm very fascinated by this. So it seems like if we understand, if we have what you might say a high view yep. of humans as yep. the image of God, it seems like it would have power both to help renounce sin, so to speak, yeah. for, a, for an individual, but can you say something about how it also speaks to ethics and how we would treat other, other people who are the image of
0: Yeah, certainly um, the language gets picked up in chapter 9 would be the best place for an ethical uh, where you're not to murder because he's in the image of God. So that's giving great value um, to uh, the worth, the Psalm 8 that was read out, what is man that you're You're a little bit lower than the angels? That's the, and there's ruling language, which picks up chapter 1, verse 28 as well. So I think that chapter 9 is the big one, the image of God. Uh, you could look within Genesis chapter 1, the human beings are the climax of the creation story. Um, they're the ones that are given the command. They're the ones that are given the blessing. God speaks directly to them. So there's an elevated role of humanity over the cosmos. You know, in Genesis chapter 1, you have these you know, based on if you take the framework view of Genesis where you have these day one and day four match, uh, when you get to human beings, instead of... Um, they're, they're over the whole creation, so it's kind of a stark contrast to the others in terms of the, the significant domain that they have. So I think you could bring in issues of stewardship, all those pieces with, um, with creation, but I think chapter nine, prohibition against murder especially. Thank you so much. Let's give her a hand.